everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rethink Reshoring. I'm Kaylee Nix here with Rosemary Coates from the Reshoring Institute. Rosemary, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. Excited to be back for yet another very interesting episode of the show that we've got going on. So glad to have you joining us as always. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into a topic that we mentioned back a couple of episodes ago when we started talking about China and some very interesting things that have been going on in that country. Today, we're specifically zooming in on the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And we briefly mentioned the Uyghur people and what's happening with the forced labor camps in China a couple of weeks ago. But go ahead and just give us an overview of the situation one more time so we're back up to speed. Yeah, so yet another reason to consider reshoring uh, is what's going on with the Uyghurs in China. So the Uyghurs are um, a Muslim uh, group, a culture, uh, I guess I would say, in Zhejiang province, which is the very far western province in China. And uh, they have their own sort of culture. It's sort of similar to Turkish culture. They're Muslims, um, and they are uh, being highly discriminated against by the Chinese government. So the Chinese government has set up the sort of concentration camps where they the intention is to sort of uh, re retrain, I guess, um, the Chinese into or the Uyghurs into thinking more like the Chinese. Uh, and so they've set up these labor camps that are producing all kinds of different goods, and uh, so. And trying to import those into the U.S., it's uh, illegal to import forced labor, prison labor or slave labor. Any product that's made from uh, that kind of labor is uh, not allowed to be imported into the U.S. And uh, so this was a, you know, this was a, uh, been going on for a while, but this was a big deal starting a couple of years ago when a number of uh, human rights watch organizations discovered that these uh, prison labor camps were making all kinds of products that were being sold into the U.S., well, actually around the world. And so we passed uh, this uh, Labor Act. Um, it's the Uyghur Forced Labor Act. Um, and it, it um, disallows anything coming essentially from Zhejiang province in China. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So the Department of Labor has been watching the situation very, very closely for several years now. And it's not just the Uyghur people who are affected. There's other Muslim minorities who are also detained in these camps as well. As, as you mentioned, kind of an assimilation technique or an attempted assimilation into Chinese culture, leaving from their traditional Muslim views. Can you talk a little bit about the Forced Labor Prevention Act and what the actual act is? The decision to pass it if it was simply a United States decision or if there are other countries who have signed in on this as well? Yeah, well, the Forced Labor Act is strictly U.S. related and U.S. Customs uh, has had on the books for, you know, 100 years uh, that we do not allow any imports coming in from, from jails, prison labor, uh, or um, as I mentioned before, any kind of slave labor, anything like that. We don't allow that. So this has been around for a long time. But this one specifically targets um, uh, any kind of goods that are coming from Shishang province or made by slave labor. And the difference is um, the assumption is made that everything 
coming from Zhejiang province is automatically rejected because it's uh, made with slave labor. And so what's that's what's called a rebuttable presumption. Uh, and that means that if you have products, you're buying products from Zhejiang province, like um, any kind of cotton products, there's a lot of cotton grown in that area, tomato pro products. Um, surprisingly, there's more ketchup made in China than there is anywhere else in the world. But tomato products, um, they also make all kinds of TV remotes uh, in Zhejiang province. So the presumption is everything is made by slave labor and you have to prove that it's not. So that's like proving a negative, which is the hardest thing to do. So U.S. Customs stops everything um, that's coming from Zhejiang province and says, stands its ground and says, well, you have to prove to me that it wasn't made by slave labor if you're importing from there. And that is really tough. I mean, you know, how do you do that? Do you go into the factory and get affidavits? Do you, what, you know, what exactly do you do? And uh, that's made it very difficult for any company in the U.S. that's importing, say, uh, apparel that may be made with cotton, uh, any other cotton products that come along. Uh, all these things are being stopped and held at customs until you can prove they weren't made by anyone in uh, a slave labor kind of situation. It's a really difficult situation to walk, especially when you look at some of the workarounds that some of these manufacturers in China can go about to get their goods out and to U.S. importers just in a different, I guess, kind of a different tactic, right? We've talked a little bit and heard some rumors swirling about folks maybe from the Xinjiang province who now export these goods to another Asian country, maybe Taiwan or to Vietnam or Cambodia and then now ship it to U.S. importers underneath the presumption or, I guess, the false presumption that it comes directly from those other countries. Is that something that we're continuing to see is, as a workaround is companies now exporting to a different Asian country and then selling it or billing it as, hey, this is a product directly of this country, but it's still maybe coming from this forced labor situation? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's that. And there's also um, a lot of the Uyghurs are being bussed into other factories around China and used as um, slave labor, essentially, in those factories. So all these things, any products that are made in those situations, whether it's in another factory in China or any other country, are all restricted as imports into the U.S. And it may, it may sound like, you know, a company says, well, you know, we'll, we'll ship the cotton over to Malaysia and have it woven into fabric and make our stuff and, you know, no big deal. Nobody will know. And that's simply not true. Uh, most of uh, the U.S. Customs Service bases their import restrictions on intelligence. So they know these companies. They know where those companies are shipping to around the world. And if they're shipping cotton to these other production facilities, then those production facilities are also excluded. And it's up to you to prove that you're that they're wrong. So, um, you know, once again, proving a negative is really difficult. I guess, you know, the only way to really uh, figure out uh, whether or not you have any slave labor in your product is to completely map your supply chain uh, from the origin, from the field where it's grown, uh, where it's mined, where the goods are mined, where the production factory is, um, 
uh, where any of those goods might be shipped to another factory, all of that. You, you need to map all of that so that you are completely aware of where um, your products are coming from and who's manufacturing them. Now, if you take the the uh, idea that um, uh, your labor is being shipped to say somewhere in you know coastal region to Sh uh, Shenzhen or uh, Dongguan or somewhere like that, and being and working in the factory, that makes it double hard because you have to go to the factory and look, maybe interview each person um, to make sure that they are not. Um, they are not a Uyghur or they're not being uh, forced to work in that factory under duress. Um, and, you know, some other um, kind of uh, uh, emphasis that's put on, on people who are being forced in a labor situation like that. So, you know, control over your supply chain is really hard. I mean, we are talking about trying to figure this stuff out on a massive scale. And just, just think about, um, you know, maybe you buy uh, uh, some kind of um, outfit, a shirt, for example, um, at Target or at uh, Walmart, and uh, you look at the label, it says made in China. Well, all of those importers um, that imported those goods from China have to be able to prove that none of the cotton, none of the content, none of the labor that went into making that shirt was made by a Uyghur. So this is, it's uh, it's next to impossible. I mean, really, really difficult situation. Uh, so, you know, you, it's very common to have your, your apparel made in China. And so have a look at it, look at the label and, uh, you know, try to understand if whether or not it's made with slave labor. I think one of the most interesting things about the Uyghur situation is the fact that it really highlights kind of the differences in the trust of government from the United States perspective to the Chinese people. Obviously, we know that there's not a ton of governmental trust in the Chinese government, especially when it comes to telling the truth, right? Because you would think that if there was, these U.S. importers would be able to reach out and go to the Chinese government, the Chinese Department of Labor, if they have one established and say, hey, I want to see your statistics on this labor and get kind of a clear picture from an official government oversight side of things, right? We put a lot of faith in our Department of Labor to guarantee that we're seeing things clearly and truthfully from a government reporting side. Is that something that a lot of these U.S. importers are having to fight with is kind of that delicate balance of trusting who you're talking to versus knowing yeah. that a lot of what comes out of China and the Chinese government as a whole is propaganda? Yeah. Yeah. And it isn't just the Chinese government. So First of all, in, in um, these kind of situations, it's partially the government operating them and partially com commercial enterprise. So these may be commercial enterprise companies that are making uh, TV remotes. Almost all of them are coming from Shishang province. Uh, and so these are commercial companies that are also hiding the fact that they're using this super low cost or slave labor and no cost labor. Uh, to manufacture their goods. So it's sort of a combination. And you're right, um, the government, you know, when, when statistics look bad, uh, the Chinese government just doesn't stop, stops promoting them or stops publishing those. <clears throat> You've seen this um, just recently with uh, a lot of the economic uh, information coming out of China where it looks really bad right now. Um, you know, there's no growth. There's a lot of unemployment with uh, young people. There's um, you know, all kinds of um, uh, mortgage crisis situations. There's all sorts of things going on. 
where they've just stopped publishing statistics. Um, and that's because they're negative. And it isn't just, I don't want to just blame China either. I mean, this is a common practice around the world. We, you know, we're lucky enough to live in a, in a country where there is a lot of transparency and things, uh, statistics are produced regularly, good or bad. Um, we have a chance to look at those and criticize. And of course that, that, you know, leads to all kinds of political volleying, volleying back and forth. Um, but in many other countries, there is no transparency. So these sort of things are going on in a lot of countries in Africa, um, uh, throughout the Far East. There are many companies like Myan countries like Myanmar, for example, where the same is true, where the government hides those statistics. So you know, we basically don't know where our stuff is coming from, and and that is a, a great segue into why we should be manufacturing in America. Absolutely. And we will get there in just a second. I want to finish this off by asking if there's a solution to this. We obviously see the U.S. Department of Labor putting in that Forced Labor Prevention Act. And as you told us earlier, that simply relates to the United States itself. But do we see maybe a solution or a possible forced solution if we could get a coalition of some of the bigger importers together globally to say, hey, we are not going to accept any product from this or is China just such a big production superpower that it won't that, that it won't even be affected if something like a global coalition were to come together? Yeah, actually, there are a number of coalitions already. So there's some worldwide coalitions that involve not just the U.S., but countries, particularly in Europe, who have the same uh, kind of approach and feelings about about forced labor <laughs> situations. But there's also industry associations. A lot of the apparel and footwear companies have banded together to try to understand where their products are coming from and what they can uh, do to address what's going on with uh, force, the forced labor situation. So there's a lot of research in that area. But I think, you know, overall, what we're seeing is this evolution of global supply chains. So, you know, yeah, years ago, nobody cared about the supply, uh, talking about supply chains and nobody cared about it then. But now, there's so much more visibility and the ability to track and understand what your entire supply chain looks like, that that's the evolution and the direction that we're moving. So in today's environment, there's software that helps you map your entire supply chain. And that means not just who you're buying from, but their suppliers and their suppliers, suppliers, and their suppliers, suppliers, suppliers. So you can map, actually map your supply chain all the way back to uh, the origin of the, the growth or mining of particular products. You know, one, one great example is Apple. They're famous for going all the way back to the copper mines when they're buying copper wiring for phones, for example. Um, they're likely to know who made the wire, who uh, uh, extruded the wire from the manufacturing process, who bought the raw materials, who mined the, the copper from the mines and so forth. So they have a, a very good and clear view of what there's, what's going on in their supply chain. And that's the kind of thing where companies are heading. So in the past, it used to be much simpler. You just buy stuff from China, end of story. In today's environment, you have to really be active and understand what that entire supply chain consists of or you won't be able to import products into the U.S. Uh, and that's, again, true for around the world, all different countries. 
and yet another reason for you know shortening that supply chain not only because it's good and sustainable to have a, a lesser carbon footprint but also to understand what all is involved in your supply chain and manufacturing in America. And uh, I must say, you know, even if you're manufacturing in America or you're bringing things back to Mexico, for example, for manufacturing, you still have to understand where all those supplies come from. So it's not enough to just say, well, you know, we're going to now manufacture in South Carolina. You have to understand where that cotton came from, where the textile plant was making the textiles, and finally, where the apparel is being assembled. It is definitely not an easy process to track and to keep track of. And as you mentioned, that's that perfect segue to talk about this is yet another reason to consider to move your operations either reshored back to North America or closer to the U.S. just in general. And we can, of course, kind of get into the debate of ethics on actually reshoring as well, because as we know, bringing operations back to Mexico is preferable to, say, bringing them to the United States or to Canada for some U.S. manufacturers because we have a, an, an abundance of cheap labor in Mexico. That kind of makes me wonder where we kind of draw the line ethically, right? Obviously, this all tells us that forced labor, slave labor is bad. But by moving things back to Mexico, it's showing that slave labor is bad, but cheap labor is okay. Is there that kind of ethically blurred line in between what cheap labor is, like where you get from that slave wages or slave labor, forced labor into that cheap wage line? Or is it kind of blurry just depending on each company and what they're willing to do? Well, cheap labor um, is fine because the, you're putting people to work at their own free will. So that it's not slave labor. And even though maybe low wages, essentially, <clears throat> it's still voluntary work. Um, and I, I think, you, you know, you have to look at it through the lens of the people that are working in these low cost areas, whether it's Mexico or Bangladesh or Myanmar or anywhere else in the world, Costa Rica, <clears throat> Um even if they're working for very low wages, it may be a sustainable wage in their country, or it may be, um, you know, at least it gives them a, a full-time job, which is really important. And I think, you know, if you look at the world economics, what we want to do is put everybody to work in their home country. Uh, and that, you know, that's one of the, the tenets in solving our, our migrants problem is if uh, people have the ability to work and to, uh, and to have a sustainable life, to have and to be able to earn enough wages to live, uh, you know, at least comfortably in their home country, they're not going to migrate north. So, you know, this is really an important, uh, an important kind of concept to consider worldwide in terms of, uh, you know, how how this is all put together. I think it's absolutely fascinating to discuss that as well because it really highlights how supply chain it can be a connecting thread between all of your global issues and your geopolitical issues yes. right it all kind of feeds in together and you literally cannot separate one from another right it's kind of the whole basis of this entire episode as you mentioned this is a really good reason to look at shortening those supply chains and bringing your manufacturing back home reshoring then how do now we go about making that transition and Continuing to kind of stick to our guns and make sure that we don't get to a point where we say, okay, you know what, we're, we're over it. We're going to go ahead and blur those lines, those ethical lines once again. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on a previous episode, too. So you have to understand what your cost structure looks like. 
if you have a lot of labor in your product, so if you're making apparel, for example, there's a lot of sewing labor that's involved. But if you're making textiles, I, I love this example, uh, textile manufacturing is all automated. So there's hardly any labor involved. So if you have a lot of labor, you want to look for a low cost labor environment. And that may be central Mexico, for example. That's a that's a great place to consider um, but if you don't and you have an automated factory, you certainly have lots of options, including the U.S. So so one of the keys is to understand what your cost structure is, um, identify what those cost drivers are, and then match an appropriate strategy to that. So there's, there's you know, a lot to think about, a lot to consider. It isn't simple. It certainly isn't straightforward. Uh, but you need supply chain professionals to help you and to understand what that worldwide profile looks like. So I want to wrap this up by kind of talking about the power that these manufacturing companies really hold when it comes to supporting humanitarian issues like the Forced Labor Prevention Act, right? We know that especially here in the United States, a lot of the voting is done with the dollar. And if you've got companies that are putting up a fight and saying, hey, you know what, we are not going to contribute to you our portion of capitalism because of this, that's a good way to get things done, right? Has that been something that we've seen is that these companies are sticking to now this Department of Labor Declaration, the Forced Labor Prevention Act, and saying, yeah, we are we are in this and we are willing to maybe sacrifice profits a little bit if that means continuing to support our production the way that we're going in order to preserve the humanitarian effort. Absolutely. You hit it on the nail. That is what we would call ethical manufacturing where companies are, are considering more than just the cost, right? So in the, in the past, I mean, 25 years ago, my clients were saying, just get me to China. You know, I want to go, I want to be to China. Be, I want to be in China because it's cheaper and my competitors are there and so forth. Today's environment, there's a lot more to consider. So it's not just the cost, but now you would consider some of these ethical issues. Um, you know, what makes sense ethically, also, um, you know, what your customers are saying. Um, and as you said, we vote with our dollars. So if we as consumers are looking for labels um, that are made in the USA, for example, and we choose that over products that were made in, in China or any other foreign country, then we have a winner, right? So mm -hmm. we can help uh, support the U.S. economy. Last but not least, are there any other places in the world that are really dealing with these labor issues and these ethical humanitarian rights issues? And is that something that could become maybe a snowball effect and eventually impact more than just one Chinese province and more than just one country as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are similar situations. Um, I think we may have talked about in the past, uh, Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, where a building collapsed um, and um, 1,100 people died. Uh, and that was a sewing factory. And, and there was very poor oversight regarding the factory and the structure of the building. So it isn't just you know labor in Zhejiang province, but we need to think about where are we producing our goods worldwide? What kind of environment is it? Is it safe and legitimate for people to go to work in those places? Are you pay, paying a living wage? And when I say living wage, that may be, you know, a dollar an hour for a worker in Bangladesh or less, um, or it could be a living wage in the U.S. So, you know, th those kind of situations are different. So you have to take each one individually. And once again, the key to it is to be able to map your global supply chain so you understand all those factors and tie them together. 
Um, and that is, uh, you know, an executive level decision that now um, requires a senior person to be able to oversee what's happening. And we did, you know, th- this was a long time in coming. Um, I know early in my career, you know, I was uh, a hardworking transportation manager and logistics manager, and nobody really paid attention at the senior level in the organization to me. That's not the case today. Uh, supply chains are very front and center and obviously um, obvi- obviously have to be paid attention to in order to make the right decision, both ec- economically as well as ethically for your company. And of course, as always with supply chain solutions, there's not one size that fits all to get things done. Rosemary, thank you for joining us again for another episode of Rethink Reshoring. And of course, we will be back next week one more time. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you've missed any of our episodes from the last few weeks, head on over to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash FreightWaves. Drop down the shows tab and go ahead and catch up on all of your favorite episodes from Rethink Reshoring and from all of our shows here at FreightWaves. Thanks for sticking with us. We'll see you guys next week. (laughs) 